As we go to God's word, will you pray with me a moment? Lord, we do humbly ask that you will be our strength in this hour. Um, We don't need clever thoughts. We don't need mere interesting ideas. Uh, We need a word from you. We need the strength of your Holy Spirit in this place. So we open ourselves to you, and we ask that you will do something uh, significant and good and real for us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is um, If I haven't met you before, my name is Greg DeMay, one of the pastors here with Jeff. As Jeff mentioned, um, at the front of this worship service, we've just begun uh, a season in the church year called Lent. And um, here's the thing. Even if you go to church, at some point, you start taking Jesus for granted. At least I do. This isn't the wise part of me. This isn't the good part of me. Uh, but it is wise and it is good for the church to set aside 40 days and 40 nights every year where the spotlight is trained exactly on what Jesus came to do and what he actually accomplished. Because if we forget about that, we've lost the whole deal. So that's what the next seven Sundays, that's what the next 40 days and nights are about. Keeping your vision, keeping your heart open and fixed on Jesus. Um, To help us do that, week in and week out, uh, you're going to be asked to kind of self-reflect a little bit on your relative emptiness or fullness, spiritually speaking. Um, One of the great minds of the 20th century, uh, Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, said this about evaluating where this line is in all of us. The line separating good and evil passes not through nations, not through states, not through classes of people or political parties. This is good for us to remember. It's very easy to say this part of politics is evil, this part, you know. He's saying, nope, that's not where you find the line. The line that separates good from evil passes through every human heart and through all human hearts. And that is the business of Lent every year to kind of examine where this line resides between virtue and evil, between right and wrong, within each and every one of us as we seek to listen to God and follow Jesus. So, when you came in today, do you feel empty or full? Like if you had this gauge on your forehead, you know, how is it reading? We will come back to this, okay? But let, let this linger around in your mind. By the way, you can have a paradoxical reaction to this question. Like, you can feel both at the same time, sometimes, depending on your, what am I full of? What am I empty of? Like, you can both feel quite full and alarmingly empty at the same time. In the Gospel of uh, Luke chapter 4, which is going to be our text today, um, Jesus is having this experience of both being incredibly full and alarmingly empty at the same time. Here's what the Word of God says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What was the wilderness? A dry, barren, empty kind of place where for 40 days Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end, he was hungry. So Jesus is full 
What is he full of? He, this is uh, three years before the cross and the empty grave, he is freshly commissioned by the Spirit of God and has just risen up out of the waters of baptism where the voice of God the Father spoke over him for others to hear, this is my beloved Son whom I have chosen. With him I have well pleased. And Jesus is now just taking his first steps into, well, the job description of being the Messiah. Like, had a first job that you were really excited about? I'm sure Jesus kind of felt this way. Like, now it's out in the open. I am going to be the Messiah. I have this job description from God the Father. He is full of the Spirit, and he is physically empty. The Spirit of God pushes him out into this deserted place. He doesn't have friends, company of others to be there with him. He is by himself. He is empty of society. He undertakes the spiritual discipline of fasting for a long period of time. He is empty, physically empty of food. Now, I don't know how you are, but when I am hungry, I am at my most susceptible to nonsense. Like one of my favorite words of the last 10 years is this combination of hunger and anger. So we can self-describe now as being hangry. Like that is a great word. Uh, shop and there was a poster hanging in the window and it said, I'm sorry for all those things that I said when I was hungry. You may be thinking though, like Jesus was God, right? I mean, he was the son of God. Was he really as hangry as I get? I mean, maybe it was a long time that he didn't eat, but he was still God, right? I mean, how, how bad could it be? So have this, I think, misinformed picture of Jesus that he's sort of like Superman. That, you know, Clark Kent, I mean, mild-mannered news reporter, wearing the business casual. But if you, like, bump into Clark Kent, or, like, God forbid, if you would, like, throw a punch at Clark Kent, how would it go for you? I mean, he's still Superman, right? I mean, if you elbowed him, you'd, like, crack your elbow or you'd break your fist because he might look like a regular person, but he's still Superman. What would happen if you ran into Jesus? Nazareth. Or, I mean, Jesus had siblings. I'm sure one of his brothers at some point just, like, punched him or slapped him. Like, what happened? I mean, Jesus bled, right? He would bleed like you. He would bruise. He was not like Superman underneath Clark Kent's clothes. He was 100% a human being. So when the Bible says that Jesus hungered, that he was felt this 100% as humanly and realistically as you do when you are hungry. So in this moment of alarming emptiness, neediness, probably physical weakness because of the length of his fast, this is the moment where the devil comes to Jesus and decides to start sabotaging and attempting to throw him off course from his job description to be the Messiah, to be everybody needs. Here's what the gospel says. And then the devil said to him, oh, these are in yellow, so I would like you, my friends, to be the voice of the devil today. So if if you can read this kind of snidely and, uh, you know, evilly, then the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, 
tell this stone to become bread? And then Jesus answered. That was kind of creepy. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is physically empty. The devil is trying to capitalize. The first test that Jesus endures is the test of instant gratification. You know this test? It's where you just want something right now. Something to make you feel better? I could use some of that right now. Or to make something stop right now. I mean, Jesus was so hungry, just my hunger stop. We all face these kind of temptations. The devil lands a punch here, no doubt. Like, Jesus feels this. This would hurt. And then Jesus punches back. I mean, Jesus is physically empty, but one of the things he is full of is self-control. Like, on the self-control meter, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and totally maxed out in terms of self-control. Notice, he uses a piece of scripture. It is written from the book of Deuteronomy in particular. It is written, Jesus says, a person doesn't live on what superficially satisfies them. Right? That is not going to get it done for you. That is not going to make something significant happen in your life. Was Jesus carrying around a little pocket Bible with him? There was no such thing, by the way, 2,000 years ago. Was he carrying like a couple scrolls? You know, thumb through the scroll and find a relic? No, of course. Like Jesus had spent significant time as a kid, as a young person, learning the word of God. And when it comes time for this testing, what does he do? He relies on that. He taps into his memory. He taps into his collective experience as a child of God and is able to bring something forth to resist the devil. I mean, this is why, you know, not every worship service on Sunday is going to be a home run, far from it. Not every small group, like, changes your life. Not every Sunday school class or memory verse you memorize instantly is like, this totally did it for me and changed my life. I see it. But if you build up a reservoir of those kind of a spiritual experiences, when the rubber hits the road, the Spirit of God will help you pull forth from this deep reservoir of your history with God exactly what you need at the right time. Right? That is the significance. Don't feel like it. For good stuff. I mean, whether it's, yeah. In every area of life, this is true. Again, Part of our sinful brain probably is like, you know, maybe Jesus was really hungry, but he was the son of God. How much, you know, really, beyond just the physical hunger, could he have, you know, wanted to sin or thrown away his mission as the Messiah? Like, he never sinned. So how much could he know about sin even? Ever had these thoughts? Let me ask it this way. Who knows about hurricanes? Is it the person who, you know, watches a little bit of the news, hurricane coverage on their TV in Chicago, and then two days after the hurricane, you know, a little bit of rain falls and the wind blows 30 miles an hour, and you're like, oh, that was... Like, no, we know nothing of hurricanes here. The people who 
hurricanes are living in, you know, coastal Georgia and North Carolina, like people who literally have been surprised and been sitting in their house when the wind is blowing 75 miles an hour and 12 inches of rain comes down in 12 hours. Like the people who experienced it and have sat through it, endured it, those are the people who know about a hurricane. Same thing for sin. If you just like cave in sin every time a sinful idea pops in your head, you actually know very little about sin or testing. It's the person who endures the hurricane winds of temptation and testing that really understands what the nature of sin and trials are all about. You hear what I'm saying? So Jesus, because he resists and endures every form of temptation, is actually the universe's leading expert on temptation and the nature of sin because the wind had to blow harder at him him to cave. I like that way of describing Jesus. Expert in sin. Not in sinning, in the nature of sin. Jesus understands every trial and temptation we could go through. Here is temptation number two. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed Jesus in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Your turn. The devil said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Empty of possessions and physical stuff. I'm imagining Jesus only has the clothes on his back and the sandals on his feet. The devil says, wouldn't you like to have everything? All the kingdoms of the world. All the power. All the stuff. The second test is a test of selfish ambition. Jesus, will you sell yourself to really make it? Would you like a shortcut to being the Messiah? Just bend the knee. Jesus hears this temptation and again quotes scripture. The book of Deuteronomy pulls it up from his history with God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Wouldn't you like a new truck? I could really use a new truck. Wouldn't you like a vacation home? I mean, like a super nice second house? Wouldn't you like someone to come along and like just double your income right now? was like, put your arm around the devil for a second, and all of that would happen. Like, easy street. Just bend the knee for a minute. Just forget God for a minute. And this can happen for you. Jesus may not have much physical stuff at this point. He is empty of that. But he is full of focus. He is full of Devotion to God. The New Testament word for worship, by the way, just worship me, is means literally to kiss toward someone. 
like to be on your knees, like if there was a throne and a king, and to like literally kiss toward them. And the devil says, just give me a little kiss. That's all we'll take. Just a little kiss in my direction. And Jesus is like, no, this kind of obedience, this kind of affection, only for God. The temptation to accumulate things for ourselves is really powerful in the nation in which we live. It's a temptation that is around us the way water is around a fish. For sure, material prosperity kind of authority and splendor that the devil promises. The danger here for all of us in this room is that financial security, financial success becomes a leading or primary ambition and we put our trust in wealth or stuff rather than God. It is a test we all face on a regular basis. Jesus resists. Jesus brings out the word of God to help him resist. Here's test number three. This is the graduate level temptation. Then the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, the destination for Jesus' job description as Messiah, brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and then the devil said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, "Mm -hmm. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. If you're ever being tempted and you hear the devil whisper a piece of scripture in your ear to justify the thing you know is wrong and off target, you should be 100% creeped out to the point of your skin crawling. I mean, this like freaks me out that the devil is able, allowed to test Jesus to the point of quoting scripture at him. You find this alarming? Like that is really manipulative and perverse. By the way, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray that line, lead us not into temptation, like, does God answer that way? I mean, how's that going for you? Like, have you ever gone like a day or a week without being tempted for something? Was Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, spared from testing and temptation? I mean, he wrote the Lord's Prayer. Like, what's going on? This line in English is unfortunately a little misleading. The old translation of save us in the time of trial, that is a much better prayer and one that God is very willing to answer. If your prayer to God is like, oh God, just don't make me do anything hard. Oh God, don't make something bad appeal to me. Like God is not going to answer that prayer for you. Like you as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus, you will be tempted and tested. There is no getting around that. The the awesome prayer, the on-target prayer is, God, save me when when the heat is on. God, help me resist and endure. Like, that's the Lord's prayer. That's what Jesus lived. Help me resist. Jesus, (laughs) 
Jesus knew the Father's plan for him. This third temptation is testing the Son of God's power and his sense of control, almost his, his pride. Jesus knew God the Father's plan for him. He knew that the plan included both a self-sacrificial life and a self-sacrificing death. And the devil tries to get Jesus again to fast-track this plan, to take the easy way out, a way that would get instant, instant positive attention and PR. Imagine in busy Jerusalem if a guy jumped off the highest building in downtown Jerusalem and everybody saw this and this guy gently floated down to the ground and maybe there was the flutter of angel wings. I mean, people would freak out off the Sears Tower and landed on the ground, whole. No parachute. Like if Jesus had an Insta account and somebody was like, kick, 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 right? Like this would blow up and everybody would know, this guy is amazing. He hasn't even done anything yet. The devil quotes Psalm 91 at Jesus. Notice how Jesus resisted temptations twice by saying, it is written. And now the devil says, yeah, but it is written, if you do so and so, then God will really rescue you. And Jesus' response is to come forth with the word of God once again, but he does not say it is written. He says, it is said. Here's the difference. In the church... You know, we have the written word of God. We hold it up as an awesome thing that inspires us. But, you know, the church has a pretty checkered history in occasionally getting the written word of God insanely wrong, misinterpreting it, misapplying it. I mean, not usually out of bad intentions or bad motives, but just we're human beings and we're trying to, like, mine the written word of God and the written word of God here, it's twisted, it's manipulated, 100% misapplied. Like, God forbid, when we do this kind of stuff. So Jesus does not say it is written. Jesus says, know what? I've actually heard the word of God come out of the mouth of God, and here's what he says. Don't put God to the test, especially by perverting and twisting his words even though they're written down. Jesus says, I have spent actual time in the presence of God the Father. He has given me marching orders for time and eternity. And even though you can quote some nonsense on me, if you have heard the voice of God speak into your life, direction, if God has confirmed that in multiple ways, usually also using the written word of God, like if God has spoken something to you, please, please, please don't deviate from that. Right? God has different custom marching orders, plans, uh, things for us. Do not deviate from that. Jesus was full of confidence that the hard way is God's way. The gospel text ends with this. When the devil finished all of this tempting and testing, he left Jesus until 
an opportune time. So this text is at the cross, three years before the empty tomb. I mean, we know Jesus was tempted here. We know he was severely tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. This passage implies that the devil was kind of waiting all the time, just around the corner, for a moment of weakness. For maybe a moment where Jesus might be a little extra susceptible to the easy way or the quick way out. The tempter is going to be in the background of all the gospel stories, waiting to try to take God's plan down. This is some serious spiritual stuff. The same reality is true of everybody who walks in Jesus' path. Like, we, we are in a fight. I mean, there are spiritual things that we cannot see that would seek to sidetrack us, cheapen us, knock us off course for the good that God wants to accomplish through us individually and collectively. All right, I'm going to shift gears quickly for a moment into something far less serious. Okay? There is a Dutch man who I've become recently very fascinated with, who is like an expert in resisting temptation. His name is Wim Hof. You have a picture of this guy? Here, he's doing his favorite thing in the world right here. This man likes to swim in ice water. He also likes to hold his breath as long as humanly possible. Weirdly, I am kind of into both of these things, and I'm really fascinated with this guy. He, as a very curious, spiritual young man, he was reading the Bible, reading the Koran, reading Buddhist texts, uh, wondering, like, hey, what's it about? Where can I find some answers? He claims that at age 19, he was walking by a semi-frozen canal, and something deep inside him said, you'll find the truth in the cold water. Like, I'm not making this up. So the dude, like, went for a swim in the icy water, and he's been doing this. He's like, I don't know, 57, 58 years old now. Here's his claim. Every human being, if you're in really cold water, you are instantly tempted to do what? Get out, (laughs) right? Because you feel yourself literally dying by the second. If you hold your breath, what are you instantly tempted to do? I mean, after 30 seconds or, I mean, after three minutes? I mean, this guy, every day, like, holds his breath for 12 minutes or longer. Every day, goes in ice water. Here's his claim. By physically resisting these basic things that we do all the time in our body, you actually become incredibly strong as a result. So if you, any of you, were to instantly plunge into ice water as an average human being, you would be dead in 12 minutes. I mean, 15 minutes, tops. Like, if you're really mentally strong and in good shape. This guy, he has been in ice water like that for one hour and 55 minutes. Continuous. I mean, like, happy, smiling, talking to children as they come greet him on the ice. (laughs) Isn't this interesting? They have tested this guy's brain. They have tested his blood. He is not not Clark Kent. There There is not antifreeze flowing through his veins. It is simply his contention that by resisting on a regular basis the urge to get out of the water and the urge to take another breath, that something 
almost physiologically miraculous has happened within him. He used to be depressed. He used to be angry. He used to not sleep very well. This man has like literally the strongest white blood cell count immune system on the planet. If he stops going in water, he returns to normal in very short order. Like he is content. He is tranquil. He rarely gets angry. He is incredibly happy and joyful. And he would say, just the exercise of resisting. I see there's some doctors in the room and people are like, what? No. Like, look this guy up. What is true for this man on a superficial, not so important physical level, strength through resistance. This is the truth that Jesus demonstrates on a much more profound level, a spiritual level, a soul level. When we resist testing and temptation and our alarmingly regular urges to sin and do selfish stuff, when we resist, we open the door, God, the Holy Spirit, to make us strong miraculously strong. When you are tempted, it is not because you are a horrible human being. It's because you are a human being. In the same way that Jesus of Nazareth was a human being. There is no shame in being tested or tempted or in having any of the nonsense that particularly appeals to you, that that appeals to you. It is a window of opportunity for God to actually make you sturdy and virtuous and spiritually strong. Again, the virtuous person is not the person who has never been tested, for whom sin has no appeal. The virtuous person is the one who feels the temptation deeply and continues to resist until the very end. All right, a final pastoral observation. I believe that obligation our community sitting here today uh, is in a season of being uh, tested right now. There are different seasons that we go through kind of as a community. There are times where inexplicably several people will pass away in the same month and then seven or eight months will go by without grief and death touching this community. Uh, There are times where all of a sudden there is a bubble marital troubles or diagnosis or uh, discontentment or physical pain. Uh, again, my observation, I've tested this out with a few other people, is that we are currently in a season where there is a lot of trouble and physical pain and brokenness all kind of happening at the same time. Why is that? I am not comfortable pointing at any one single situation and say, yeah, the devil made that happen. Kind of making a collective observation here. Friends, um, at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, God has been incredibly faithful through the decades. So much good has happened through this church, through this congregation, through her people. Uh, I believe that we are on the cusp, on the threshold of some new, really great things happening through this congregation and ministry. And the forces of evil, which actually exist, are not pleased by this. 
I mean, if there's a church that just, you know, is happy to get together for a couple, uh, you know, buffets, potlucks, like, the devil probably doesn't mind very much. But if you actually have a church that is interested in exploring God, if you have a church that's actually interested in training up a small army of people to be connected and neighbors and, you know, get a ball of spiritual momentum rolling in a positive direction, like that's when the devil's like, you know what? More trouble would be good now rather than later. The devil is an opportunist. Doesn't like the kingdom of God moving forward doesn't like Jesus showing up as the Son of God, and he will wait for an opportune time to wreak some chaos and some havoc. So if you are sitting here today and feel, you know what? This is kind of a crazy season of testing. Welcome to the club. <laughs> like, welcome to the church. Welcome to Elmhurst Christian Reform Church. Our calling, should we choose to it, is to resist whatever nonsense, whatever evil, whatever wrong is coming our way in your life circumstances, in your life and time. I mean, it's to pray, save us through the time of trial. Here's what I believe down to my toes. If we resist... If you resist personally, if corporately we resist, even greater things will come into being through the Spirit of God. That's how it goes. Resistance breeds strength. I am not confident in my own personal capacity for resistance. Like, I'm just a guy looking at you. I am not super confident just looking in your eyes on your personal capacity to resist. Here's what I am confident of. The power of the Holy Spirit, which lives inside you, which gives you the power So this gauge, the real spiritual question for today, how full of the Holy Spirit are you sitting here today? How fully capable are you because of the presence of the Spirit inhabiting your spirit are you to resist the nonsense that the devil is currently throwing at you? Are you feeling on the empty side? Are you feeling like, I don't know what right now. I have some wacky thoughts on a regular basis, but are you somewhere in the middle? Where do you want to be? Where does God call you to be? How might you get there? I hate sermons that end on questions. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want to follow the leading of your Holy Spirit. We want to be full of your Holy Spirit. So help us stay close to you. Help us to know and recognize your voice and your words and through the power that we find there to resist temptation. For Jesus' sake we pray and everybody says, amen.